Polymath is a word that I first started noticing earlier this year. And it really is the best way to say somebody who embodies so many different things. And that's who this guest is. He has his own podcast, which you've probably heard. He has a few apps in the Shopify app store. He has a consulting business working with big name brands like Jay Leno's Garage. And he has his own community as well with one of the biggest and most active Facebook groups in the Shopify ecosystem. I could go on, but you probably have guessed who I'm talking about already. Kurt Elster is the host of the unofficial Shopify podcast. He also has a handful of e-commerce communities, which have become very tightly knit. His agency, EtherCycle, works with some of the top name brands like Jay Leno's Garage and Tactical Baby Gear. And he's been a speaker at events all across the world for the past several years. But today, as we celebrate Festivus... The tradition of Festivus begins with the airing of grievances. I got a lot of problems with you people. Now, you're going to hear about it. I thought there's no one better to kick off the Rolled Up podcast than Kurt to join me and unleash the Larry David within as we air out some grievances. Like in the U.S., it's it's strange because 55% of e-commerce dollars get spent on Amazon. That sounds an awful lot like a monopoly to me. A new holiday was born. A festivus for the rest of us. Amazon spent $17 million in 2019 on lobbyists. 2018, $14 million. Clearly, I'm, I'm coming across here as anti-Amazon. I still have a damn Prime membership. Hold on. Hold, 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 hold. It's not just an Amazon bitch fest. This is half the podcast. We're also going to be talking about his career, where to start your career in e-commerce when building an online business, and some of his podcast pet peeves, because unlike me, he's hosted over 350 episodes. So here's my conversation with Kurt Elster, a true e-commerce polymath on the Rolled Up podcast. As someone who's doing so much, how do you identify and how do you like to introduce yourself? Well, the short answer is I say, hey, I'm an e-commerce consultant. Mm -hmm. And ideally, that's sort of like saying to someone, I'm a dog lawyer. Like they're either going to go, I want to know more or they're going to their eyes will glaze over and they'll move on. If I distill it down to two words, just e-commerce consultant. But really, like when I think about what's my why, why do I do this? I view myself as a champion of entrepreneurship. I want to enable entrepreneurs and, you know, I have always loved computers and business and entrepreneurship. And so e-commerce was just such a natural thing for me, starting you know with eBay when I had account illicitly at 16 up to now I'm 37 and I have been working on Shopify exclusively for the last six years, working full time in an agency uh, that I founded 11 years ago. And before that, I was doing just independent. I was a, a e-commerce consultant as well. Oh, wow. Uh, so in an industry that grew 10 years in three months, you have like 45 years experience, if my uh, <laughs> my math is correct. Yes, yeah, uh, roughly. Well, it's funny about e-commerce is like, it's so new and it evolves so quickly that do any of us really know what we're doing? Yeah, I suppose I know more than someone just starting out, but it, it is very much just like an unending, continuing uh, learning cycle with e-commerce. And I think that we saw that a lot this year with everyone's talking about Black Friday when we start the promos. And it was all kind of everyone looking around to kick the party off because what worked last year, I don't think anyone was 100% confident that they could run the same promotion or have the same setup this year that they did last year. Well, 2020 is quite the adventure, quite the dumpster fire. 
but it threw everything out of whack. And yet we survived. Everyone adapted. Like I learned this year that e-commerce entrepreneurs are the bare grills of entrepreneurship. <laughs> they improvised, adapted, and overcame a global viral pandemic. And somehow some businesses did quite well, depending on what you were doing. I remember hearing stories in uh, sort of April where puzzles and fitness bands People were either kind of drop shipping or just doing it like a little side hustle. They had sent some private label to Amazon and all of a sudden they were maybe doing 5,000 bucks in sales a month. They sold out $40,000 worth of inventory. Or if it was more of a legitimate business, they had to go from a five to 8,000 square foot warehouse to 10,000, 15,000 within two months. Yeah, it was a, it was a strange time. I think what's interesting about the pandemic is there are so many spaces and technologies that it accelerated. Weirdly, like even talks around um, seemingly unrelated things like sustainability and climate change. Suddenly, I feel like you know, conscious consumerism um, and sustainability have become much more top of mind for e-commerce entrepreneurs. And I think it's, it is part of the pandemic. And then it, you know, at the same time, we're really starting to take a, you know, thinking more about Amazon and what's the impact of their, their broad reach. But at the same time, like a necessary evil in the world. And even now, where, like in the US, it's it's strange because 55% of e-commerce dollars get spent on Amazon. Mm -hmm. That sounds an awful lot like a monopoly to me. They've built, like it, the whole thing's vertically integrated, horizontally integrated. They have um, their own shipping network. You're dealing with shipping over Black Friday at the time of this recording. And really, like UPS is struggling, FedEx is struggling. Amazon seems to be keeping up. <laughs> I don't think FedEx is struggling. I think FedEx drowned. <laughs> I'm not hearing a lot of good things about FedEx. Yeah, it seems like FedEx got hit the hardest. I know we had one client. Um, they had uh, 4,000 orders packed, ready to go. They had another three or 4,000 waiting to be packed. And they gave FedEx these projections in advance based on previous years to their FedEx rep. And their FedEx rep said, oh, well, you're capped at 100 orders a day. That's it. And they said, well, could we take it to the hub? They said, no, there's no space for it. They said, uh, what are we supposed to do? And so, like five days of complaining straight and FedEx sent out a 20 foot trailer on a Saturday and got everything. But it seems like that's what that a lot of these, these smaller businesses are getting these, these quotas, but even big ones, right? Like right after black Friday, we heard these stories of like, you know, Kohl's Nike, uh, these really big retailers getting the same quotas. It was scary, but it seems like packages are moving. There are delays, but they seem minor. They're like you know, a few days in general. It's not bad here in Canada. I've ordered a few things and gotten them pretty quick, but I'm also in a major metropolis. I imagine it's different if I'm outside of the city. Yeah, it depends. It is very much geographic. So I'm 40 minutes outside Chicago and things have not been bad. But, you know, depending on where you are in the city of Chicago proper, it's like, oh, you're going to get a letter this week and that's the soul of your deliveries. Yeah, or... It all just shows up at once <laughs> and it's congratulations. You have to bring a skid into your one bedroom condo. <laughs> so if you haven't guessed yet, Kurt and I were recording the episode during Black Friday shipping in the aftermath. It's going to air on December 23rd, which is the national holiday of Festivus. And we were celebrating by the airing of grievances for all the e-commerce founders we're championing, really kicking off this new podcast series that I'm doing just to wrap up a absolute dumpster fire 
dumpster fire doesn't even do it justice just to wrap up 2020 and kick off 2021 on a much more positive note <laughs> you're listening to rolled up like a burrito how was that perfect but let's dig in a little bit more because like you said amazon 55 percent of e-commerce revenue how is that not a monopoly because they have if you have 51 percent of a vote you control everything so they own the industry and as i'm watching the crown on netflix all i can think of is you have brands paying rent in amazon's warehouses you have consumers paying memberships which the recurring monthly fee is essentially rent and then amazon is also getting a cut of every sale from the merchants who sell there which is essentially a tax so how is amazon not a kingdom with its own monopoly right now just because the u.s federal government has not turned their eye to them yet and it really seems like they do this based on how long the company has been around like microsoft and intel's antitrust lawsuits i was think it was like exa almost exactly 20 years from when they were founded to when it happened. We're now seeing the same thing happen with Facebook, mm -hmm. where they're they're gonna break up Facebook like AT&T is what it, it looks like they wanna do. So I think if those companies got that critical eye from the federal government, which no, it's, that's not a pleasant experience, nobody wants that, but uh, sometimes a, a necessary, necessary pain, I think it, it's just a matter of time for Amazon. And I'm sure like that's, why they spend what they do on lobbyists. Do you know how much they've spent? Do you have that stat off the top of your head? In 2019, Amazon spent, they spent 17 million in 2019 on lobbyists. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> 2018, 14 million. 20, so every year they're spending eight figures on lobbying DC. So imagine the average e-commerce brand if you're doing 5 million a year in e-commerce, that's pretty good. They're essentially spending three times that revenue on just lobbyists. That's how big Amazon is. For them though, I imagine a lot of that focus was like trying to stop sales tax or like a federal e-commerce sales tax, which that, I mean, that benefits the entire industry. Consumers don't want to pay the tax and merchants don't want to deal with it. And it gets very complicated as well. If you have inventory in different states, shipping to different states, it does get very convoluted in weird ways. Like clearly I'm, I'm coming across here as anti Amazon. I still have a damn prime membership oh. and there's literally eight Amazon echo devices in my house. So definitely a little hypocritical, but we had, we had canceled prime and then the damn pandemic hit and lo and behold, here I am again. Mm -hmm. The thing is unavoidable. It is. You can't escape Amazon's reach. And even a, do you remember a few years ago when AWS went down and just how much of the internet was impacted by it? Anytime I see, you see like a, an internet outage, there'll be, you know, it'll be like half a day where a whole bunch of sites go down. You can almost guarantee it's AWS. And again, like this is where things start to get concerning, where they control so much of modern life. And I mean, when you think about it, they control websites streaming entertainment they just released a movie probably one of the top buzzed movies of the year in borat 2. they have their warehouse network plus their entire shipping network which like you said at, at the uh start of the pod fedex ups usps canada post they're all struggling and yet amazon it doesn't matter they're still fulfilling those prime promises they're just huge Honestly, I think the shipping network is probably like one of the most problematic parts of Amazon's empire. 
like there are plenty of articles about this but what they do a lot of the the amazon fulfillment is done by contractors mm -hmm. like oh we contract these people but the contractor only does deliveries for Amazon. And then Amazon, like, they had this very systemic process of being like, all right, we're going to give you this area and we're going to give you these packages. And they essentially get you hooked on the money as a business. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time, they go, if anything goes wrong, they go, well, they're not our employees. We don't own that business. Those are just contractors. So, like, anything goes, you know, they're only delivering for Amazon, but then anything goes wrong and Amazon washes their hands of it. Uh, that seems a little sketchy. And they're very much you know, profit driven where they're, they're trying to get those those razor thin margins to make the business work. Yeah. And you're using your own equipment. You're essentially driving a car for industrial purposes, which wasn't meant to be driven that much. So if you don't have a fleet of Teslas, you're racking up oil changes uh, and just a lot more maintenance through everything else on your vehicle, which you don't pay the cost for at the time. That was one of the one of the concerns raised is often maintenance goes deferred on these contractor delivery vehicles and so then that creates like a an inherent safety issue and it's because they're trying to say cut expenses to shore up profit margins and i don't know if a lot of people realize this i mean we see it in the industry but what about just having products knocked off on amazon whether it's through amazon basics amazon's private labels or just other sellers what's something that if your mother-in-law was listening to this podcast or maybe uh, she, she might know, but the average mother-in-law who doesn't know how e-commerce works, what about how Amazon can take data and just spin up their own products? I think that's another item uh, to reference because as we're really airing the grievances, Amazon's not that great. So if you're a driver, not the greatest. And I didn't really mean to turn this into uh, an Amazon bitch fest, but they're just so big. Well, plus we have an agenda. Right? It's very much Shopify versus Amazon. Oh, absolutely. David versus Goliath. It is. Like, we've both uh, made our careers on Shopify. So, to spin it positively, here's why. But as a seller on Amazon, what happens when Amazon brings in their own private labels to compete with your brand? Oh, God, that one really, that one bothered me. When the first time... I'm looking at batteries mm -hmm. and a little a toaster widget slides up for the bottom of the screen and says, you should consider this other product. And it was Amazon Basics. Mm -hmm. And so Amazon has this category data where they can look at, they know in any category uh, how much an item sells. What's the best seller? What are the fastest growing products? And so it's very easy for them to, they have this this wonderful source of data and for them to go, okay, well, here's the stuff we need to sell ourselves private label and they could do it at like tremendous mass and they have the network where it is probably i would imagine you know they're going to be able to operate with an economy of scale where they get better deals and better margins on the same items that their own merchants are selling and so it's strange that they're like hey you know we're uh anyone could come on board and sell items on amazon also if you do too well you are now competing with amazon mm-hmm and that one is questionable. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that where you spend all the money to just create a product. You're paying Amazon to store it. You're paying Amazon to advertise it. And then you do all this work to get them to your product listing. And then they pop up. Well, what about this product for half the price? That's Prime eligible and you can add it to your order. And we'll give it to you for free if you subscribe to Amazon Prime today. It is 
And it goes beyond that as well, though, with just the Amazon Basics brand, because Amazon has their own brands of of everything. I mean, technically, any Whole Foods house brand is is Amazon. Oh, yeah. I didn't think about that. Jesus. Yeah, I, for- <laughs> I forgot that Amazon owns Whole Foods. I went to Whole Foods late last year, and the weird thing about it, they were handing out flyers. They were like postcard-looking things about... Like, essentially, like, what a great employer Amazon Whole Foods was and, like, how the Whole Foods employees were so thrilled. It re- it was very strange. It was, like, PR propaganda. Yeah. <laughs> so you went to Whole Foods and an employee, in quotation marks, an alleged employee hands you this postcard? So no one handed it to me. When I got there, they were littered on the ground around the entrance. So I'm assuming they were handing them out. Uh, either like on your way in or out and then they were just people were just tossing them on the ground yeah it's either propaganda or the world's worst recruiting campaign yeah something to the, i don't know the whole thing rubbed me the wrong way another uh amazon thing uh since you do have your office in a mall is the amazon cube what was that cube again because it, it was just weird <laughs> the cube the mall uh, westfield old orchard mall in in skokie illinois is one of the the oldest malls in america and their vision was, hey, let's make this as much a community space as it is retail, which was cool. Mm-hmm. And so they've got it really cool green spaces. And you see like a lot of people just going to walk their dogs at the mall. It's an outdoor mall. Um, it's very neat. And they had an event space in there. There's this big glass cube. I tried renting it for an event once, um, a Shopify meetup, but uh, Samsung outbid me. Uh, they have bigger pockets than I do. And anyway, uh, Amazon did a pop-up store in there in, geez, how long ago was that? It might have been 2018 or 2019, but they put a pop-up store in there. It's a small space, and then they never left, so they've been in there ever since. But every, like, six weeks or so, they change the theme. But it's literally, like, you go in, you can see the merchandise. It's a pop-up shop with a theme. So, like, one theme was, like, Barbie's anniversary. One time it was Batman. Um, One time it was, like, just, you know, uh, it was a promo for Audible. But you just go in, and they've got, like, two, it's small, and they have, like, two rows of uh, shelves. And they've got the items. You can see if you can play with them. There's a single employee. And then if you like the item, there's a QR code. And then you buy it from Amazon and they ship it to you. It was always kind of fun to check out. Like it wasn't, you know, super popular. It's cool and sounds like a good concept. But do you remember Mitch Hedberg, the comedian with a bunch of one-liners? Oh, I love Mitch Hedberg. Yeah. Do you remember his joke about the donut? And he would say like, I bought a donut and they gave me a receipt for the donut. I don't need a receipt for a donut. I'll just give you the money. You give me the donut and the transaction. We don't need to bring ink and paper into this. I, I just cannot imagine a scenario where I'd have to prove that I bought a donut. Some skeptical friend, don't even act like I didn't get that donut. I got the documentation right here. It's kind of like, you don't need a QR code. Just give me the product that I'd like to purchase so I can take it home and open it. How about I give you money for this product and I leave? That's all we need to do here. Well, then at the same time, there's those Amazon um, convenience style stores where like you literally, you go in, you pick up your item and you just walk out and you're charged for it. Oh, I forgot about those. Yeah, I've never been to one. So I thought like, oh, wow, it's going to be the future of retail. And that's what this Amazon, the cube would be. The cube being literally the name of this space. And no, no, it's like a like a pop-up showcase. I don't know, it was weird. But I was just writing down off the top of my head all the stuff that Amazon does own. So obviously, Amazon, they're uh, back in logistics, Prime Video. Uh, they have their own exclusive podcasts. 
Uh, I don't think we're going to get the Amazon Prime exclusive podcast after this episode, though. <laughs> Whole Foods, they own Goodreads. They own IMDb as well. Like, is there anything that Amazon is not touching? Oh, I'm sure there's there's something. So Amazon doesn't have their own properties or vehicles for rent, but they do operate their own airline. And this year, if you were to look at airline success by percentage of planes still in the air, they're probably one of the most successful airlines that operated in 2020. They have 70 aircraft, and for context, UPS has 276. Oh, and you know Twitch, the uh, gaming streaming site? Yeah, they also own that. But the fact that you said, is there anything Amazon doesn't touch? And I'm like, yeah, probably, but I don't know. I was going to say cars, but I just saw that like Alexa is now in Buicks. But like, that's where it becomes strange is where when you go, well, what don't they do? And we don't know anymore. You could live your whole life through just Amazon at this point. Yeah, isn't that weird? That is weird. They don't offer housing. Yet. That's, I think, all right, so there, we found something. But it could be uh, a prime B&B where uh, if you're digital nomad or you just want to live somewhere for six months, you can just go show up and the entire place is furnished with the best of the best Amazon Basics home furnishings. And they don't do a lot of furniture yet. Only because it's hard to ship. That's crazy to, to really think about. Let's shift gears a little bit. We have to have a fun story, at least, on, on the pod. What's it like working with Jay Leno and Jay Leno's garage? <laughs> well, okay, the coolest part was getting to tour the garage. It's 200 cars, 200 motorcycles in a sprawling multi-warehouse. It has a, a focus on sustainability. Like they got solar panels and uh, wind energy. It was really cool. Walking around that place, I got goosebumps repeatedly at just at some of the stuff in there. And even a few cars where they go, we literally, like we estimate the value on this for the insurance, but because it is one of one and has never been resold no one knows the value of this vehicle there were a few like that wow yeah including this old i think it was a bugatti that was in um uh seabiscuit i believe was the movie it was in wow with spider-man yes yeah Topher great wow it's a lively car to drive i mean it really feels more powerful than it is welcome to an episode of jay leno's garage the car i'm featuring today the 1929 Bugatti Type 40 Grand Sport. This is a fascinating little car. This is probably the least expensive Bugatti. You know, it, it, it's funny. Uh, this was Bugatti's most fertile period, the mid-20s. This is when they sold most of their race cars, the Type 37, the Type 37A, the supercharged Type 35B, all those cars. And those cars were relatively expensive like that vehicle they're like we, you know who knows what the heck it's no one knows for sure what this is actually worth there are a couple like that no i mean it's a relic somebody could buy it for whatever reason but it could go for a million it could go for a hundred million depending on who the buyer is yes it's strange too when you get into like that level of strange rarity luxury good you know just being around that and like just tangentially like seeing the the experiences and some of the stuff from the guys that work there. It's, you know, it's not like I met Jay Leno a couple times and he's really very pleasant. Nice guy, you know, did, remembered me, which I, I hugely appreciated. Wow. Um, yeah, that was, I was like, he- For, Like, I, think about how many people Jay Leno's met and he remembered you. And I, I was like, oh, that was really nice. Like, I appreciate, I said, I appreciate the lie. They're like, no, 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 he really does. Like, he, he is who you think he is. So like the Jay Leno you see on TV, 
actually the Jay Leno in real life. And when I met him too, they said, they said, hey, Jay, there's somebody we want you to meet. And he was wearing the full denim. He'd just gotten his haircut <laughs> and he's adjusting the timing on a 70s Lincoln that he was going to take out for the week. Wow. Seemed to be like his MO is like, he switches up a car a week. It seemed to be like how he operated. They said, hey, we got somebody to meet. He looks up from this Lincoln and he says, it's not another one of your Tinder dates, is it? Like, while looking me <laughs> locked eyes with me. So he just opened with like a, a wonderful Jay Leno joke. And of course, it was like, <laughs> and then everything, my mind blanked at that point. And I said, hi. And then like, I ran away. Like, I was so intimidated the first time I met him. <laughs> then the subsequent time, it was much more normal. It was better. Oh, that's funny. Imagine if he had the um, wherewithal to do a callback to the Tinder joke. Hey, you got a second date. <laughs> Like, well, then the same thing would happen where I would have not been able to like my brain would have broken again and I've been like, oh, hi, and then ran away. <laughs> and I practiced the conversation in my head, too. It was very silly and then still couldn't get it. Still couldn't keep it together. But I think what's interesting about a brand like Leno's Garage is people assume like, oh, you have an A-list celebrity attached to it. Then it's just like instant overnight success. And it isn't the case. Like, certainly that's an unfair advantage for them. A hundred percent it is. But they still have to go through all the same effort any other e-commerce brand of that's starting from scratch has to go through. And like they still have to go through all the same audience exercises. And I'm sure they're gonna get the hookup on some stuff. But then on other things, you know, they're gonna they're gonna try and charge a a Jay Leno tax where it's like, oh, it's Leno, they're gonna try and charge more. Or, you know, like Facebook doesn't care who you are. They're gonna pay the same ad budgets and be exposed to exactly the same algorithm. So it's not like the instant success that you would think it is. Um, and their director of marketing, Chris Walters, said all this publicly on my show that like that's the biggest misconception about a brand about their brand, but I think about like celebrity driven brands in general. And we're starting to see this more and more with a lot of creators, especially people blowing up on TikTok and then just launching stores. Do you think that's the future of e-commerce or a larger element of the future than it is now? Just with the industry growing so much, is that really the future where you need to be bringing your own audience to launch if you don't have significant capital? Step one of launching any e-commerce brand really any business but any e-commerce brand should be building the audience if you don't have that audience what are you going to do and i think that is like the number one mistake i see people make over and over um, new brands at least and i find it very frustrating they're like i've got the best idea all right now i've got the coolest designed website and wow we got this really cool logo we, everything's really slick oh yeah well, who's your customer like why do they buy what do they get out of it how do they view themselves i'm my best customer Okay, how big is your email list? Oh, we haven't launched it yet. Now, who are you going to sell to? And they're all nervous. Oh, don't take the password off the site. Nobody can see it. Nobody's looking, right? Like, it's going to be, oh, look, like we took the password off. There's three visitors, you, me, and your mom. So if you're not building that hype in advance of launching and publishing, like part of the problem is launch. I launched my website. Oh, yeah, what's your launch plan? I took the password off. I didn't even launch anything. You like gently push your canoe into a slow moving river at best. So it's about building hype and awareness. Like first people need to be know you exist. That's hard enough. Like a brand is very much like a mud golem. It's just a big lump of clay until someone breathes life into it. 
right? It's meaningless. Like my agency's name is EtherCycle. It's a stupid name that I picked 10 years ago because the domain name was available. But ah, you start putting branding to it and you start putting content behind it and you start building a community around it. Ah, then it starts to mean something. It starts to have an association, but it's all like totally arbitrary. So if you don't put in the work, you don't do the work, you don't build the audience and your messaging doesn't connect. You don't know why they want to buy. You don't know what they get out of it. You don't know how they sell themselves. How are you going to get anywhere, right? Like messaging and positioning is the thing that will make or break you. And you have to have an audience to, to speak to, to talk to, to build a relationship with before you can figure that out. I think that's the key is like you have to view everything as a relationship building. It is very human and very squishy because you've got like, you know, the idea of, hey, someone's going to just show up on your website for the very first time and spend $100 that day is insane that'd be like well you know i i want to get married so i'm going to go to a bar and just pick somebody and be like hey you want to get married well that's essentially what you're doing with your e-commerce website so you got to build that hype like you need you need a hype man and you got to be your own hype man and you have to be building that audience mm -hmm. and you're going to start small it's gonna be like friends and family and then you know on down the road hey i've been going that was quite the quite the rant all right i'm gonna stop talking now quite the airing of grievances yeah there you go so two more things that I know that we were going to talk about. One is entrepreneurs who are starting out and, you know, maybe they don't launch, right? They hear, oh yeah, you know what? It's easy. Just throw some Facebook ads, throw it, put it on the website and I'll get a ton of traffic. And then there are all these cash advance places, probably shouldn't name too, too many, but where they'll give merchants and entrepreneurs say $10,000. And as long as you keep making sales, like they take a cut of that sale until say $13,000 is paid back. So you're essentially paying a 30% APR loan, which you might as well go pawn your jewelry because those are the interest rates you're 30 getting. 30%? Some of them are, yeah. Oh my God. Just for a little bit of context for anyone who does start their own store, once you start to get sales, you start getting offers from uh, PayPal is really famous for calling it PayPal Capital to fund your business. And it is a useful tool because when your business is less than two years old, or even a lot of times you have to have some sort of personal guarantee. So these financing tools don't use those and they don't char keep charging interest if you don't pay them back. But the amount that you have to pay to borrow the funds is quite high. Like, do the numbers. It's like an APR of 30% where if you have to pay it back every two months within 60 days, it's if you did that through 12 months of the year, you would have access to say, because you don't ever have access to more capital, you're always paying it back with interest. Essentially, it's worded so it's not doing that, but the rates are just insane. So if it's 30% APR, at that point, use a credit card. Aren't they capped at like 25? Yeah, but it's not APR because it's a cash advance, not a loan. Uh, <laughs> so if I say... So we're really, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of linguistics loopholes we're jumping through to make this work. Yeah. So it's, if it's like it, Hey, Kurt, I'll pay you 10 or I'll loan you 10 bucks. You pay me back 11 and I'll just keep taking a quarter every time you sell something. Mm. So you don't notice the cash flow, but then, okay, that's great. I've made a dollar. You've done the 10 bucks. And I say, Hey, Kurt, want to do it again? And you say, sure. Then I make another dollar. And let's say we do this throughout the course of the year. All of a sudden, I every month, I made $12 loaning you 10 at a time. This spooks me because you're, yeah. you're leveraging debt on a high risk investment and so it's easier to spend other people's money right it always is 
So I think it makes you less risk averse when it's a loan, even though like you're on the hook for the loan and you ultimately because of interest, you end up owing more than you borrowed. No, that's future Kurt's problem. That's future Kurt's problem, because I know this idea is going to work and everything's going to work out just fine. I'm incredibly risk averse. I I have bootstrapped my business and have used uh, have used credit cards as as 30 day zero percent interest loans. Uh, That's not for everybody. But if you're like me and anxiety keeps you up at night, I'm not borrowing money at 30%. I'd never sleep again. No. Oh my gosh. Ugh. Yes, it's it's a tool and a way to or a business, but, and uh, Eric Bandholtz, who's going to be on a future episode is- I like him. He's really good about this too, is, oh, I love Eric, but why would you take on debt that you don't need to when you can do it your way and have the freedom to do it your way? I like the the independence of entrepreneurship. And this is part of my risk aversion. Like if you have a job, you have a single point of failure for your primary source of income. If you run your own business, you cannot get fired, right? You own it. No one can fire you. And your employers then, your source of income, are your are each of your income streams. So maybe your business has a retail direct-to-consumer and it has a wholesale side. And then maybe it has an affiliate income side. Like there's, you'll have several things going on in the business to power and drive your income. And that is what attracts me to entrepreneurship is it is so it it really defangs earning a living in the year 2020 because you've got like, okay, I lose one customer. All right. That's not the same as I lost my job, right? You're barely going to feel that at all. So that's my, my attraction to cash flow in entrepreneurial businesses. But as soon as you're borrowing money, Oh, it starts to to break that system. You essentially have a boss again. Same thing with investors. It's when I was running Treats Happen, we could have grown a lot faster and maybe we should have, we could have done a lot of things differently, but I never wanted to go and take out a lot of money because at that point you have institutional investors who owe you money. They don't care about really anything except getting paid back. Of course they should. Like they should. Like that's their job. That's why they're loaning yeah, you the money. I'm in no way vilifying the lenders and the investors no. in this scenario. I'm just saying, man, that would it's a gamble. It's a tool and it comes with risk. All investments carry risk. Even spending money on like, you know, in my scenario, if I'm gonna say, like, man, I'm gonna spend ten grand over the next ninety days on Facebook ads. For small business, that that's a lot of money. But like that itself is its own risky investment that I may not get a positive ROI on. I'm not saying don't borrow money and that you should never borrow money and that it's always evil. I'm not. I have borrowed money before. Like, so I didn't pay cash for my house. That's a mortgage. I'm borrowing money for that. It's just, you know, go into it with eyes open and have a plan and, and think hard about it. And also, you know, part of it's your personality. Like, just straight up, I, I'm just too anxious a person. Like, I, <laughs> I don't need this stress in my life. I mean, we could keep going on and on. But one last thing that I wanted to, to touch on, and you kind of segued it, when you said having those multiple streams of income, we both have podcasts. Uh, one of the reasons I'm starting this podcast and working with a producer is I don't love a lot of the quality of the podcasts that are just out there right now. What are some of your beefs with podcasts as we wrap up 2020? Good question. Well, as a podcast hosted producer, the analytics in podcasts are so broken. They're really like non-existent and much of it is a best guess. And that's another one where you have a monopoly in that there is a single company. The Internet Advertising Bureau has somehow become our source of truth for what is and isn't a legit podcast analytic. Um, And that concerns me a little bit. But, yeah, I think like for advertisers, for the producers, I think having those broken, unclear analytics are a problem. 
as the as far as like podcasts I listen to go, I like entertaining podcasts. I listen to fiction podcasts mostly. I'll listen to news podcasts. I will rarely listen to a business podcast because they are too long and too boring for me. And I'm saying that as someone who hosts a, a business podcast. So I try to make it entertaining. We try to make it more edutainment to solve that. But really, it's just like that's You know, it's based on what on my own personal preference. And I think there's podcasts that are over edited, drive me nuts. Podcasts that are under edited, drive me nuts. I'm very critical just because I host my own podcast. Then I listen to my own podcast. I hate that one, too. <laughs> <laughs> so in true Festivus fashion, you unleash the Larry David within. Yes. <laughs> Podcasts uh, too edited, not edited enough. Oh, I don't like the sound of my own voice. I'm not going to listen to mine. Oh, business podcasts. No, thanks. Fiction. Oh, not a good story. But I think the advantage to like hating your own work is that you're always iterating on it and revising and try and make it better. I've done 300 and over 300 episodes, 325, I think. And episode one's horrible. Episode 100, not that much better. 200, okay, getting somewhere. 250, oh my gosh, he's almost figured this out. 300, and I'm like, all right, it's still not what I want it to be, but it's so much closer than it was. It's like you just, you're stacking the bricks and everything you do is a skill and you're going to gain experience at it and get better at it. So I think that's like a normal and healthy thing to do. I think the messed up thing would be if I, after 300 episodes, I looked back at episode one and went, well, that's just as good as episode 300. That should be a red flag. If you're doing the same thing over and over and the quality <laughs> stays the same, something's gone wrong. Like push yourself out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And that's also like part of that too with a podcast. I had horrible social anxiety disorder. Horrible. I would sweat profusely at the thought of hosting a podcast, but I pushed myself out of my comfort zone. And really like largely it's very rare for me to experience social anxiety now, you know, five years later, but I was starting from uh, definitely a disadvantage point perspective uh, because of that. And then, you know, you'd you get better at it over time. I think that that's just a, a really great way to wrap it up. Where can people find you? Obviously, uh, presumably everyone listening to this episode is going to know you, but if they don't, for some reason, where can people find you, Kurt? Well, uh, Google me, Kurt, uh, Google Kurt Elster, head to kurtelster.com, sign up for my newsletter. And that's my actual email address. It comes from. So if you have you know, thoughts, questions, or airing of grievances, just reply to that welcome letter. And I promise I'll read it. I may or may not reply. <laughs> That's probably the best disclaimer. I'm just going to read it and then air grievances to Lucas about it. <laughs> Man, look, look at this guy. He, he said he thanks. He Couldn't even say thank you. Like, who says <laughs> thanks? Like, you don't care. That's pretty good. Well, I really appreciate it, Kurt. I like, had a blast doing this. Yeah, this was a good one. I hope everyone has a good holiday around uh, around the 23rd. And, and stay safe and social distances. Now is the time to be vigilant and not give up and really like try and quarantine and self-isolate and stay home however much is practical because we're we're right at the, the tail end of this thing. So close. I'm going to be able to go back to Disney World soon. A huge thank you to Kurt for joining me during an incredibly busy time of year. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you let Kurt know in his community, the unofficial Shopify podcast insiders on Facebook. And if you want to hear more of his insights, you can find his podcast wherever you're listening to Rolled Up. 
Make sure you're subscribed so you can catch next week's episode where I chat with my friend and mentor, Peter Neal, one half of the Neal Brothers. And that bell means it's quitting time. OmniSend doesn't just automate your marketing. They integrate with best-in-class apps like Smile, Gorgeous, Recharge, Shopify, and more. Easily migrate to OmniSend and join 70,000 customers from Baking Steel to the Lakers store and automate your marketing without frustrating your customers by being relevant and timely. Get started today for free with email, SMS, and web push notifications over at OmniSend.com. You can't control the route your boat takes from overseas to bring your products to your 3PL to get picked, packed, and shipped, but you can choose your 3PL and you can choose ShipBob, joining over 5,000 other merchants who have joined their global fulfillment network and over a 99.5% accuracy rate when they fulfill orders. Don't leave your logistics to chance. Head over to ShipBob.com to learn a little bit more.